Today I'd like the, to introduce Dr. Tom Metkus um, and Dr. Bo Kim, both of whom hail from across town at Hopkins. Uh, Dr. Metkus will be given the, the talk itself, though. Uh, just a little bit of background. <clears throat> he uh, did his undergrad at uh, BU, uh, went over to Penn, so I'm sorry uh, Dr. Netzer isn't here to, to really relish in this. Um, it's AOA at Penn. Did his medicine residency up at Brigham and Women's where he stayed on uh, for a chief residency. Um, came over to Hopkins um, for cardiology as well as a critical care fellowships uh, where he's remained um, on staff. So uh, the reason why I brought uh, these guys over today is to talk about um, bedside diagnosis in the ICU. Um, they've recently published on this topic in Annals of uh, the American Thoracic Society and it's something that we all deal with on a daily basis. And um, thank you for making the effort to come over yeah. and uh, welcome to me. Well, thanks, thanks for having us. And um, it's really a pleasure to be here. And partially because I work right across town, haven't had occasion to visit with you yet. And so we're really excited um, to visit and look forward to hopefully speaking to a lot of you afterwards. Um, but we're also excited about the topic. Um, and this is a topic that I've thought a lot about now in my first year uh, on staff and my, and my practice in the ICU. And I think there are a lot of different philosophies about use of bedside diagnosis and use of the physical exam in the intensive care setting. And so I've titled the talk, Should We Examine Our ICU Patients? And the impetus here is that the physical exam, I think, has changed remarkably um, throughout the years of medical practice. So on the left here you see Lenek, and Lenek was the inventor of the stethoscope, and he really uh, is examining here a patient who probably has rheumatic mitral stenosis, doesn't he? He has the rheumatic facies and is a bit uh, gaunt and maybe has cardiac cachexia. Um, and then shown here on the other side is Elazar Edelman at the Brigham, and he's making rounds in the CCU. Um, and he has an electronic stethoscope um, that's broadcast out loud with his whole team there and an iPad. And so um, we've seen everything in between those, um, including not examining patients at all. And what I'm going to try to talk about over the next 45 minutes is, is at least start a conversation among all of us um, about the role of bedside diagnosis in our ICU practices. And I don't have any commercial disclosures relevant to the physical exam, for sure. Uh, some consulting relationships. We have a, a textbook out. Um, and then Keep in mind also the non-financial disclosures, which are that I'm a cardiologist. So assuredly, that colors what I'm going to tell you. We'll talk a little bit about heart sounds and uh, assessment of the heart failure patient. Um, and I'm not a Luddite, but I am committed to bedside exam. And, and I think that'll come through in the talk. And I'd encourage you guys all to come to your own conclusions. Okay. So what we're going to talk about is first, what's the role of the physical exam in the modern critical care setting that, that we all practice in? Um, we're going to move a little bit next into the, what are the test characteristics? What is the sensitivity, the specificity, the positive and the negative predictive value of a lot of the things that some of us do every day? Looking at the venous pressure, um, listening for bilateral breath sounds after an intubation, um, etc. From there, we'll share uh, Bo and I's really practical approach, how we examine patients um, in our clinical practice. And I'll share with you that we both practice predominantly in a cardiac surgical ICU. Um, and I think that informs how we integrate the physical exam into our practice. And then we'll close by really focusing on what happens next. Where does the physical exam in the modern era go from here? Specifically, um, the use of point of care echo. Obviously, I'm a cardiologist, and I know you here have a very robust point of care echo program. So I hope we can talk about that. Um, how do we 
train our learners to integrate the physical exam in their practice. And then finally leave you with the concept that we know that burnout is endemic um, across all the different um, types of folks who practice in the ICU. Um, and at least for me personally, the bedside exam and the laying on of hands may be a bit of an antidote to that, that that may be something to think about vis-a-vis -vis a solution to burnout. Um, and so we'll start with the fact that physical exam is ostensibly a cornerstone of medical practice, isn't it? Um, we teach it in medical school. We devote lots of the curriculum to it. This is Proctor Harvey, the legendary chief of cardiology at Georgetown for many years. And Dr. Harvey was renowned for his ability to integrate uh, bedside exam and bedside diagnosis, at least specific to cardiology. And, and he would proselytize that the five-finger approach could be used to diagnose about 90% or more of patients without any adjunct. And he would say that the history, the physical exam, the ECG, the x-ray, and the lab tests were all he needed to diagnose most patients. And certainly, I couldn't come from Hopkins without the obligatory Osler slide, right? Um, here's Osler practicing the four cardinal maneuvers of physical exam, uh, auscultation, inspection, palpation. And then recall this down here is actually Osler just thinking about his findings. And that's the fifth maneuver. That's cogitation, right? So we have to gather data at the bedside, but it's not enough to gather the data. We actually have to think about it. And what does it mean in the context of what's on the monitor or what's on the telemetry um, or what operation was performed, right? So there's a cognitive step that needs to be considered here. But balance that history, balance that commitment to physical exam against um, things like this. And this is someone who I respect uh, above, above anyone else. This is someone I, I care deeply about, but they don't believe in the physical exam. Um, they're a wonderful clinician, but they said that, that the physical exam is not helpful in the ICU. Um, and a lot of people feel that way. So one has to ask, um, how do you reconcile these two things? So I'll ask you guys, actually, to start. Um, who here? believes their ICU colleagues in whatever unit you work in examines every patient every day. Uh, wonderful. Thank you. Okay, So I don't see any hands. So none of you guys believe your colleagues examine every patient every day. Um, now, do you examine every patient every day? Raise your hand. Focused exam. Some people examine, lay, lay hands on every patient every day, at least touch the patient every day. right? So I think this speaks to the idea that there's a lot of heterogeneity in how each of us integrate physical diagnosis into our ICU practice, right? And so for me, in my admittedly brief time as an attending, in areas where there's a lot of heterogeneity, that suggests that there's no one way to do things, right? It means there's an evidence gap. Um, and as I travel through different ICUs in my training, I've seen physical diagnosis integrated into, let's say, rounds, which is the cornerstone of a day in the ICU in a lot of different ways. Um, so in this ICU A, the attending would kind of go around and examine the patients all beforehand, and then the team would round together, sort of stopping at each door uh, and, and not actually going to the room together, versus ICU B, where um, the teams would come to the door, they would discuss the, the data, and then everyone would troop into the room, examine the patient, and, and notice that these rounds are longer, aren't they, than these rounds, right? So that's, that's part of it. Um, ICU C, the teams would round all together, but then no one would touch the patient, but then the attending and the fellow would break off and round afterwards and then amend the plans kind of as needed. Um, and then, you know, I've worked in ICUD where no one really seems to examine the patient ever. We sort of stop in the door, we kind of look around, and that's that, right? So again, tremendous heterogeneity in how physical diagnosis is actually practiced in the ICU. Um, and we have almost no data uh, about how this happens in a systematic way, but this is, this is one such study. It surveyed about 122 
ICU practitioners, uh, from residents, fellows, and attendings. Um, and they asked them how frequently do they examine their patients. And so the residents, 80% um, always, fellows less than 20% always, and, and attendings uh, less than 20% always. And note here that about half of attendings in this survey never examine their patients, um, which I thought is very interesting. Here's a separate study from the infectious disease literature, and this looks at patients on precautions. I'm not sure if your unit is one where there's universal precautions or just precautions where there's a, a multidrug-resistant organism, but um, I've practiced in institutions where there are both of those settings. And this study would suggest that in, among patients on precautions for, uh, for an infectious disease concern, that um, fewer than 30% of them were actually examined by their attending physician. Um, again, so maybe speaking to the issue of barriers, to examining patients in the ICU that we don't have in our, in our clinics. And when they went on to ask participants in this survey, what do they subjectively feel about the physical exam, we saw things like this. We, or these authors, saw things like this. Um, the physical exam slows me down. My attendings rarely ask for it. We already have all of this physiology data. Why do we need to do this? Um, we really don't always act on the physical exam. This person used nurses and students rather than examining the patient themselves. Um, this person really has issue with the test characteristics and the performance of physical diagnosis in the ICU. Um, this person feels that it's actually rare to see senior physicians examining patients, so that it's less and less practiced. In other words, we've, as a community, let our bedside skills atrophy. Um, and again, heterogeneity is really the name of this data, isn't it? That everybody has a different take on this. But it does beg the question, if half of attendings are examining their patients, how can they be writing notes, right, where they sort of write this thing about how the lungs are clear and all of this others. And so this study was interesting from 2013 in critical care medicine where they looked at the percentage of a note that was copy-pasted uh, across uh, eight or 10 attending physicians. And you see that you know, between 40 and 80% of these notes are carried forward and copy-pasted. And perhaps, I'm not sure what that means, but suffice to say, I think that in the modern electronic medical record era, it's quite easy to, to have our notes become um, more of a historical record than an actual document of what happened that day. Um, and I wonder if that plays a small part in all of this. Yes, of course. So I think it's worth noting too that critical care billing doesn't require. Ah, yes, of course, yeah. So, so there you go, you, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. That may very well be it. That may very well be it. And I think, I think there are a lot of issues like that. There are a lot of barriers uh, to this and there are issues in the ICU that are different than me examining a patient in my clinic, aren't there? I think that's absolutely the case. I'm not saying it's okay to go. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the discussion. That's why this is a fascinating topic. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that speaks to some of these barriers, right? So it's difficult to examine patients in the ICU. Patients are unstable. There's dressings everywhere. There's a tremendous amount of ambient noise um, in the ICU. We all feel pushed, don't we? There's a perceived lack of time, and, and in fact, an actual lack of time. We're all pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, I alluded to the vicious cycle of a lack of emphasis on the physical exam, and I'll speak to the heterogeneous evidence base. Is this even a good thing to do? Does it even matter, right? So let's speak to that. What are the test characteristics of some physical exam findings? And we can start with one that we all learned as a medical student, right, an, an estimation of the jugular venous pressure, right? And so you, you lay your patient back and you find the meniscus and measure the vertical distance from the, from the sternal angle. And how good are we at this? Well, we're not very good at this, it turns out. So these authors, um, had patients with a central venous catheter in, and obviously the CVP reflects the right atrial pressure, and they simply asked blinded uh, study participants to say, is this jugular venous pressure reflect a right atrial pressure that was low? Actually, less than zero, they, they said was low. Uh, zero to seven or, or greater than seven. And you see across each stratum here, in the low group, the right atrial pressure went from negative up to 30, uh, and then here in the high group, 
people thought it was high, but it was always from zero up to about 20, right? So we're not actually that great at looking at the jugular venous pressure. Um, we're not that much better at other hemodynamics, a similar design study of patients who had pulmonary artery catheters in, and the authors um, asked their participants to estimate the wedge pressure, the cardiac output, the systemic vascular resistance, and the right atrial pressure based on the bedside exam, and they asked them to kind of guess it in a small range, for example, CVP of 0 to 5, 5 to 10, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you see that very few people, 30 to 50 percent, were able to do that correctly. Um, and here's the scatter plot, so if the wedge that was predicted versus observed, and you know, if we were any good at this, you'd see all these dots in a straight line. But you see so much scatter here, and the same thing for predicting of cardiac output, lots and lots of scatter. So we're not actually that good at estimating hemodynamics um, at the bedside. And then if you just ask the question, obviously the gold standard question that we all ask when we're rounding is, is this patient going to augment their cardiac output to fluid? Is this a fluid responsive patient, right? The gold standard uh, of, of shock management. Um, the physical exam does not predict that all too well. 40%, 38%. Uh, if you just examine the patient and said to yourself, is this patient going to respond to fluid? And I'll also highlight, though, that it's not that much worse. CVP is also pretty poor, as, as is, is widely, uh, widely known now. And um, I think you can read different literature around the difference in uh, pulse pressure variation with mechanical ventilation and, and other non-invasive metrics. But none of these are that great. So maybe we're just bad at predicting fluid responsiveness, which we probably are. Um, but we know physical exam won't get it done in this setting. Um, how about lung auscultation? Can you listen to a patient and say, is this an effusion, a consolidation, or is this pulmonary edema, or what these authors call the alveolar interstitial syndrome, term from the, from the ultrasound literature? And you see diagnostic accuracy here for auscultation to identify pleural effusion, 61%, 36% for alveolar consolidation, 55% for uh, alveolar interstitial syndrome, obviously compared to lung ultrasound, uh, not so great, right? So maybe lung auscultation doesn't help us in the ICU. And how about this, right? You've intubated the patient. You're going to say, is the tube in the main stem or not? You're going to listen. The birth sounds are bilateral. We're happy. Well, you know, in this study, 5% of this group had main stem intubations. And of those, 60% had bilateral breath sounds, right? So maybe auscultation is not even good for that. Um, so I'm painting a picture for you that the things that we think we should be doing maybe aren't all that helpful, right? But I think we've all had that anecdote, haven't we? We've all had that anecdote where you, you went to the bedside, you examined the patient, and, and you saved somebody's life. And I think those are the ones that keep me coming back to this topic. Um, here's one such um, anecdote. This was a patient who had a provisional diagnosis of urosepsis. Uh, I was called to, to help, the, help the residents with this patient. Um, they were struggling to put in lines, and the patient was, was profoundly hypotensive on multiple pressors. Um, and I came to the bedside, and I felt the pulses. I examined the patient's pulses. I felt the radial and the femoral pulse. And when he breathed in, uh, the pulses vanished. The pulses vanished. Um, and so the, the echo obviously showed tamponade. So management of the undifferentiated shock patient, right? The bedside diagnosis of an undifferentiated shock patient. This is obviously going to be managed a lot differently than urosepsis, won't it? So I think the bedside exam was helpful in this case and probably saved, saved this fella. Um, here's another one. This was a patient who was reportedly confused and multiple patients had, multiple uh, physicians and multiple other members of the team had examined this patient. They said, this patient's delirious and confused. Um, we examined the patient. The patient wasn't delirious and confused. They were aphasic and hemiparetic, right? And so another one, the bedside exam, you make that diagnosis. We were able to refer this patient urgently for actually catheter-based thrombectomy for an MCA occlusion and did, did really well, in fact. So um, you're getting a hint. I'm getting a hint based on these anecdotes that maybe, maybe bedside exam is, is actually necessary. 
Um, here's a cool one, gurgling breath sounds. If you listen over the trachea and hear gurgling breath sounds, um, that predicts pneumonia and predicts ICU transfer. So that's a situation we see not uncommonly in our, certainly in our patients as they're recovering from critical illness or patients we're rounding on in the step-down unit. Um, and I think this audience will appreciate this point that the bedside gestalt, you standing at the bedside, an experienced clinician standing at the bedside assessing a patient in respiratory distress is the most accurate predictor of whether that patient needs to be intubated or not. It beats the SAT, it beats the respiratory rate, it beats various clinical prediction scores. So um, again, that's, that's physical exam, isn't it? That's the bedside assessment of you leveraging your experience as a clinician to take care of the patient, okay? Um, I mentioned I'm a cardiologist. Um, I spend time uh, with heart failure patients, and we know that the physical exam is prognostic in heart failure. This is about 1,000 patients um, with heart failure, and they were uh, stratified based on whether they had elevated jugular veins or not, edema or not, Rawls or not, and uh, third heart sound or not. And all of those findings correlated with long-term outcome, which admittedly is not what we focus on acutely in the ICU. But there's data for that too. So if you're looking at a shocked patient with a, with a low ejection fraction, um, Dr. Stevenson published some time ago now that the pulse pressure percentage, or the systolic minus the diastolic over the systolic less than 25%, tends to correlate with a cardiac index less than 2.2. So you're in bed at night, the resident calls you, the patient's tachycardic and their blood pressure is 80 over 60, you know, I start to sweat, right? I start to get very, very nervous when that pulse pressure starts to narrow. I think that really, that really uh, reflects uh, an impaired pump function. So that can help us um, in the acute setting. And in general, when we're assessing a heart failure patient, um, as I mentioned, my practice really does this routinely, you're trying to do two things. You're trying to assess the congestion is present or absent. Um, is the patient wet or dry? And you're going to do things like look at the neck veins. You're going to listen for a loud second heart sound. You're going to look for edema, ascites, suggestive of right heart dysfunction. You're going to ask, is the patient perfused or not? And again, you're standing at the bedside. You're looking for narrow pulse pressure, pulses alternans. Are the extremities cool? You're going to feel with the back of your hand on the arm or on the proximal thigh. Um, is there sleepiness or obtundation, a very subtle sign of low cardiac output. You've all seen that patient kind of drowsing off like that. Maybe you're, maybe you're drowsing off right now, but, but that's okay. That's a low output sign. And these are all things you find at the bedside. So is the patient warm warm or cold or wet or dry? Is there, are they malperfused or not? Are they uh, congested or not? And on that basis, A, you're gonna direct your therapy. Because if the patient's perfusion is adequate, you're great. You're gonna take off volume and things are happy. If the perfusion's not adequate, they end up with us in the ICU. They end up getting vasopressors, perhaps mechanical support um, to make sure that they can then get diuresed or get renal replacement and get the volume off. Right? So it affects your management. It also affects prognosis. So these are um, survival curves out to 18 months. And if you come in um, cold and wet, you clearly have the worst prognosis compared to warm and wet or if you're not congested at all. Right? So the bedside assessment certainly in heart failure directs therapy and predicts outcome. Um, and so how do we reconcile this, right? I showed you some data that shows the physical exam is not helpful. I shared with you some anecdotes. I'm sure you all have some in your own clinical practice. I shared with you some um, data that shows the physical exam might be helpful. And so Dr. Sapira coined this as kind of the law of Chopin. And he said that, well, sure, I can't play Chopin's music on the piano, but others can play it very, very well. In that physical exam is a skill like any other, and you have to practice it. And unless you're controlling for the experience of the examiner, it's going to be very hard to do these studies in a scientifically rigorous way. Um, and so that might be one possibility about why we have a heterogeneous evidence base. Um, I'm sure it's not the only one. 
And in my own practice, I think these are some mentors who have taught me about physical diagnosis, and I certainly am a believer, and I, I integrate it into my routine clinical practice. Um, but I'd invite you to consider its role in your own practices um, and what specifically um, you're going to do on rounds tomorrow. Um, my take on it is that the physical exam, a thorough exam with the whole care team with me at the bedside, allows us to be, um, to be teachers and learners together. Um, it allows for multidisciplinary teaching, collaboration. I think that it will contextualize things like the hemodynamic data, the radiography data, um, that can really kind of lead us astray if we consider them in isolation. Um, it obviously increases time at the bedside, and I wonder if it increases patient and family satisfaction. I, I think the families really respond to the fact that you're at the bedside with them um, and interacting with them and interacting with the patient. Um, and then, as I'll allude to more, I think that the laying on of hands really provides a humanizing counterpoint to what a lot of critical care is kind of dehumanizing, isn't it? We, we, de we kind of break patients down into their systematic components, the heart, the lungs, et cetera. And I think being at the bedside reintegrates them um, in a very humanistic way. And, and I invite you to think about that. So let's now take the premise that you want to examine your patient in the ICU. Let's jump off from there, okay? And how, how do we do it? How do I do it in my clinical practice? Um, and I, I would um, acknowledge that this is um, very much based on the type of patients that you serve. Um, I practice in a cardiac surgical ICU. Uh, people practicing in a neurologic ICU, a trauma ICU, or a medical ICU will have different and should have different approaches. Um, but, but this is ours. Um, and I think that I'd also make the point that the bedside assessment, the ICU bedside assessment, should be considered a very broad term. Um, it's not just listening to the heart. It's not just listening to the lungs. It's actually looking at everything, every device that's in the patient, um, all the waveforms, the ventilator waveforms, the central venous pressure waveforms, um, looking at the room, looking around at the family, what's the mood of the room, what's the countenance. Um, all of those are important components, and we'll lump them together uh, for bedside assessment. And we start with the general appearance. The first thing we learn in intern year, isn't it? Sick or not sick? Um, and uh, experienced clinicians here will, will all acknowledge that you can walk into the room and that little hair will stand up on the back of your neck or you'll, you'll feel something's not right. Um, and I've learned to, to foster that and I actually encourage that and then I'll take the next step and say, why am I feeling that way? What's out of place? Um, because that's very valuable. Sometimes you can't put your finger on it, but sometimes you can. And so um, pay attention to your own first impressions. Pay attention to your own first impressions. They can really, really help you here, the general appearance. And so you, know, you could argue this is, I should rely more on my intuition to make decisions. And then Dogbert says, well, that's just guessing, uh, maybe. But trust your training. And you're all, you've all seen a lot of patients. And so that first impression uh, can just be so helpful. So I, you know, we step into the room. We're going to get the first appearance. And my pointer is not going to work. So let's see what we have next. So we're going to go from our first impression, and then I go to the eyes. I, start, I go head down, and I go to the pupils, particularly in a patient on the ventilator, particularly a patient who's unresponsive. And so Dr. Uh, Stephen Colbert says, if the eyes are the window to the soul, why does it hurt when he windexes them? Um, so don't do that. But do recall the physiology of the pupil. Right? The pupil is a balance of, of sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation. Right? And the parasympathetics travel, as you know, along cranial nerve 3. And the sympathetics travel down the carotid and then down to the carotid and then up. Right? So think about that anatomy when you're assessing a pupillary abnormality. And has anyone found themselves in this situation? Oh, who, who examined the pupils? This is an hour after the patient. Are they unequal? They're unequal now. Oh, were they unequal to start? I don't know, right? This happens all the time. Um, so up to 30% of the population will have unequal pupils at baseline. So keep that in mind. 
And if both pupils react, it's actually likely that the smaller one is the abnormal one. This could be a manifestation of Horner's syndrome. Um, if it's actually the larger one that reacts poorly, think about anything that's going to affect that cranial nerve 3 along its path. Um, this could be iris damage, uh, ciliary ganglion damage. Um, this could be parasympathetic blockade. I'm sure we've all been in that situation where you got some nebulizer in your eyeball, right? So that, that can happen too. Um, but look at the pupils and then think about, particularly in the unresponsive patient, particularly in the patient coming out of the OR still under the residual um, effects of sedatives not quite awake yet, um, Look at those pupils. And so obviously, we've all seen this, right? The, the, the unilateral blown pupil. And this is a phenomenon of the, the uncus crunching down on that cranial nerve 3. And the parasympathetics, as you know, run on the outside of cranial nerve 3. So structural lesions are going to squish that down. And that's going to be ipsilateral to the lesion. Um, catastrophic injury, right? If you have midbrain injury, you're going to have these midposition and fix. Versus pontine injury, it's going to be pinpoint. And then these, these sort of supratentorial lesions, um, these roving pupils, these um, what we call hippus, right, the phasic contraction and dilatation of the pupil, these are sort of metabolic diffuse cerebral disturbances, which obviously is very, very common in our ICU practice. Okay, so I look at the pupils, um, and this is what I'm thinking about. I'm going to go from the pupils to, to the mouth next, kind of go down. Um, and you know, I'm going to look at all of the lines coming out of the patient. I'm going to look at the ET tube. This is sort of a regrettable situation that these authors published of uh, lip necrosis from the ET tube. I, I've seen one or two of these, so make sure the ET tube is well positioned um, for, so this doesn't happen. And this patient obviously I think was on BiPAP for 136 hours and had bridge of the nose necrosis. Fortunately, pretty rare. I haven't seen a case of this. Um, and then I do look in the mouth. And that may reflect part of my practice, which involves lots of patients with valvular heart disease. Um, who either have endocarditis or at risk for endocarditis. But I found this study very interesting where they took all patients coming in with endocarditis and they did a thorough evaluation. They had a dentist look in the mouth. They had a GI person do endoscopy. Um, they had uh, a thorough skin exam, even by a dermatologist. And what these folks found was that in endocarditis patients, 29% had an oral source uh, of their endocarditis. And so that obviously has big time implications for our patients after valve replacement, doesn't it? Um, and it also speaks to the fact that um, overall, they were able to identify a source in over 75% of patients, right? So for endocarditis patients, I do look in the mouth. Um, and even for non-endocarditis patients getting valve surgery, I think it's an important risk stratification point, okay? So I'm going to go from the mouth to the neck. I'm going to look at the jugular venous pressure. And we talked about how the data would suggest that JVP is not very helpful. Um, Although I'll tell you that in the heart failure world, I think the heart failure docs think this is very helpful. Um, and I do believe that you can train yourself to get pretty good at this, um, irrespective of the data that I presented you. So Dr. Stevenson points out that if you're not willing to take the time to acquire facility at reading the JVP, you, you probably will have a hard, a hard time with your heart failure patients. And I agree with that. I think we see the undifferentiated dyspneic patient, um, and it can be very, very helpful. And the technique here, if you decide to do it, is obviously you're going to position the patient such that the, the JVP, the meniscus of the jugular vein is visible, and it sometimes takes some manipulation of the bed. Um, you have to recall that if you contract the sternocleidomastoid, the jugular venous pressure will be obliterated. So you really have to get the patient to relax their neck down and, and relax the sternocleidomastoid. Um, and then obviously the venous pressure will vary with position. It will fall with inspiration unless it's you have a Kussmaul's or something else like that. Um, and you can obliterate it with base of the neck pressure, right? And that's how you distinguish uh, venous pressure from carotid. So I do look at the JVP. And I also look at the catheters while I'm in that neighborhood. So I look at the catheters in the neck. I look at the catheters in the subclavian. Um, and we've, I'm sure, all seen catheters that, that look like this. 
Um, and it turns out exit site erythema and exit site purulence are very predictive of catheter-related bloodstream infection, which I'm sure is not news to you, but that can often be the herald. And so if you see that catheter getting grungy, uh, it needs to come out, and that's, you need to be at the bedside to be looking for that. You don't want the first sign to be the bacteremia. So I'm gonna go from the upper chest and the neck to the chest itself. And, and here's where, as a cardiologist, I'm gonna ring the bell for auscultation. I guess no pun right intended, um, ringing the bell. But suffice it to say, um, another study, different from the one I already showed you, third heart sound versus, versus not a third heart sound, predictive of outcome in our heart failure patients. And then it does seem to correlate with higher filling pressure. So this is LVEDP as a function of whether you have a gallop rhythm. And you say no, LV, uh, no, no gallop versus the gallop present, your LVEDP is higher. So that can be very, very helpful. The technique here is also a subtle one. Um, can be very difficult in the ICU with, with all the extraneous noise, but if you can do it, it's helpful. Um, you feel for the point of maximal impulse, you're going to put the bell there, just barely making an air seal, um, and you'll hear that, that dull, thud-like sound right after S2, um, and it can be quite subtle. We're going to go from the chest to the belly. It's a memorable case, uh, a PEA arrest that I was called to. Um, we, we resuscitated the patient. We got return of spontaneous circulation. I brought him back to the operating room and, and really one of the most marked examples of true peritonitis that I felt, again, as a medical doctor. Um, you know, really washboard stomach. This was a sedated uh, post-arrest patient uh, who, who screamed around the ET tube when I pressed on his abdomen. Um, and this was his x-ray. He had a perforated ulcer. Um, but think about the more subtle cases. Think about the ICU patient with fever in whom you find uh, acalculus cholecystitis or diverticulitis or something like that. So there is value to a good thorough abdominal exam, okay? I'm gonna go from the belly next to the extremities, and I'm gonna feel the pulses. Um, so Osler, again, coming back, another slide on Osler. Uh, life's tragedies are usually arterial, which is true. Um, and that there's, there's no disease more conducive to humility than aneurysmal disease of the aorta and aortic dissection and aortic <coughs> catastrophes. Um, both of those are true. And um, if you were to consider the pulse deficit in acute aortic dissection, it's common um, and very, very bad. So mortality trends up the more pulses that you've knocked off, which is intuitive. Uh, shown here in a different way with a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. Um, and then remember that my patients have ECMO cannulas and balloon pumps and all sorts of arterial access sites. Um, and so documenting the distal pulses and following the distal pulses is just imperative, um, uh, certainly in, in all those types of patients, anyone with mechanical support, anyone with a balloon pump, anyone with arterial access. One could do an entire hour on the neurologic exam for non-neurologists, and I, as a card-carrying non-neurologist, uh, I won't claim to be able to do that. But I will say that my um, non-neurologist neuro exam will include an assessment of the level of consciousness, um, the CAM-ICU assessment for delirium, I think is critical. Um, you're looking at them, are they triggering the ventilator, do they have a cough and a gag? How about the breathing pattern, at least in a patient who's not being uh, ventilated with a control mode? Are they breathing in a chain Stokes pattern, which we see not uncommonly in our heart failure contingent? Um, do they have apneistic breathing or ataxic breathing, suggestive of impending CNS catastrophe? It can be very helpful, uh, particularly when you're called to the bedside to assess ventilator dysynchrony. Assess to see is the patient dysynchronous or is there actually an abnormal breathing pattern present? Obviously, are they moving their extremities? Uh, is the extremity movement symmetric? And then you can always go to the reflexes and test to see if the toes are, are upgoing. I think all those things can be helpful uh, in the right clinical circumstance. We're also looking at the skin. Uh, not uh, a moderate number of our patients after coronary bypass will have some livido, 
suggestive of um, uh, uh, cholesterol embolism syndrome, particularly if you're thinking about a patient with renal failure and you see something like this with livido, maybe eosinophilia, fever, obviously the cholesterol embolism crystals on the renal biopsy. Um, but look at the skin. If you see this, you can see obviously signs of sepsis, ectoma gangrenosum, um, uh, toxic shock syndrome. There's, there's innumerable dermatologic findings relevant to our ICU practice, so do consider the skin to say nothing of just looking at the decubit eye or looking at the, at the backside when the patient's turned to assess that risk. Um, there are some things like we're gonna, we're, we published on capillary refill time as a predictor of um, both uh, cardiac output, so lower cardiac output with lower cap refill time, and higher serum lactate with cap refill time. These are cardiogenic shock patients, um, but all of those can be helpful skin findings in the right clinical circumstance. And then don't forget the rest. There's all these other things that we put into patients and that we attach to patients in the ICU, aren't there? So this was interesting. This patient, no one told me this patient's urine was blue when they were reporting their physical exam. Uh, so you can pick up some neat things. This patient actually had gotten, it turns out, methylene blue the night before for refractory vasoplegia coming out of cardiac surgery. Um, but, but that would have been nice to know. Um, the ventilator waveforms, we all work a lot with the ventilator, don't we? And you can uh, really identification of significant auto peep can be life-saving. So that's really important. Um, if you include VAD patients in your practice, um, on uh, at least the hardware, we can inspect the VAD waveforms, and that can give a lot of insights into preload, afterload, and pump function. I think that's important. And then don't forget about the hemodynamics on your monitor. This is a neat one where uh, the rhythm was unclear based on the telemetry, but then when you look here in the CVP tracing, you see these nice little atrial flutter waves. So there's a lot of neat things you can pick up uh, just looking at the hemodynamics. So don't forget about all of that. And so. Let's come back to the two sides of this debate. Um, does the physical exam improve clinical outcomes? Does it improve resource use? Teaching and team spirit? Um, I, I, I think it does. I mean, I, it's quite magical to have a big group of medical students at the bedside and have them walk them through the physical findings. Um, increases time at the bedside? I'm sure it does. And we'll talk about this burnout and depersonalization issue. But then, or does it cause more incidentalomas? Are we acting on things that actually don't matter? Oh, this patient needs a belly scan because they're a little bit tender. But, but the belly scan is normal, right? And then you're taking a critically ill patient and traveling with them. We know radiology suite is not a good place to be if you're very, very sick. Um, are we gonna increase resource utilization? Are we traveling off the unit? Could this actually worsen outcomes? Um, and how to get at this, I, I actually have no idea. Um, you could imagine a randomized trial, you have an ICU-A where you may be using a physical exam checklist and ICU-B's usual care, and you could look at length of stay and uh, maybe caregiver and patient satisfaction. But maybe, on the other hand, this is like the famous um, BMJ article of gravitational challenge in parachutes and a randomized trial of parachutes for gravitational challenge. Maybe it's something that's so self-evident that it's going to be really hard to study. And I suspect it is. But again, food for thought about how can we improve the evidence base for our physical exam in the ICU. I'll close with a few thoughts about what happens next for physical exam. Um, and focusing on three points, really, the, the uh, integration of point of care echo first. Second, how we integrate our trainees into all of this. And third, um, speaking to that issue of depersonalization in the ICU. And um, do you guys carry around? I think point of care echo is a very important part of your practice here, is my understanding. Um, and I think certainly at Hopkins, there's a tremendous interest in point of care uh, echo by, by non-cardiologists. Um, and so Scott Solomon and Fidencio Saldana um, from the Brigham wrote back in 2014 that, that the current generation of trainees is going to grow up to have this be an extension of them, an extension just like the stethoscope. 
But this is gonna be so routine, it's gonna be on your iPhone. Um, and indeed, in many cases, it already is. People are carrying around the, the V-scans in their pocket um, and, doing, and doing studies. Um, and so what that means is that it's incumbent on us as practicing intensivists and medical educators to think about how this is gonna integrate into our workflow and how it's gonna improve patient care, right? So the ECHO Society guidelines um, have been published on this, and, and what the ECHO Society says is that the results of a focused, clinical, a focused cardiac ultrasound should be used in conjunction with the physical exam um, by an appropriately trained clinician assessing a patient at the bedside, and that you'll be making direct interventions on this. So you'll, for example, to take one, you'll image for function in a shocked patient and then titrate your vasoactive therapy based on that. You maybe look at the IVC, of course that has caveats, but for the sake of discussion, you look at the IVC and assess preload. Um, you could get really fancy and do a, a left ventricular outflow tract Doppler and calculate cardiac output. Um, so there's a lot you can do, but all of that fits in the bucket of things that you would act on as an intensivist at the bedside. Um, and certainly there are a lot of implications for the spread of point of care echo for how do we credential people to do this? How do we document this in the medical chart? Um, how do we do quality assurance uh, around this? And I think my, my uh, impression is that your program is very advanced in all of these metrics and, and should indeed be considered a model for how to do this well. How about training trainees? Um, I think this is fascinating because periodically, you know, we see all these great new curricula that come up, uh, the Heart Songs and the Stanford 25, and all these things are wonderful. So in this era of, of, of technology, we have access to so many just beautiful and thoughtfully designed curricula for physical diagnosis. Um, there's many, there's one at Hopkins even. Um, you know, but despite that, um, I, I don't know if we're actually getting any better at doing this. I don't know if our trainees are, are improving or not. Um, and, and, and I'd invite you to consider that yourself, you know, in this era of, of really focused uh, curricula on the physical exam, are, are we getting better? Um, and so maybe it's not availability of technology. Maybe it's that we have to just hold ourselves accountable for this. Maybe it's that I uh, have to make sure I'm examining patients every day uh, and, and transmitting that to the team. Maybe it's that if the, um, the intern didn't hear the murmur that was there, that you, you provide some coaching to them about, about that. Um, and it's really an, an accountability issue. We should hold ourselves accountable for clinical excellence and we, and we should hold our trainees accountable because it's certainly not availability. We have wonderful tools available to us. Um, and then finally, um, you know, this issue of ICU burnout. So ICU burnout is very endemic, uh, very common, the data would suggest. And we're trained as intensivists to, to take a complex patient and we sort of deconstruct them, don't we, into their component systems. The, this is the preload, this is the afterload, um, this is the oxygenation, this is the ventilation, um, this is what's happening with the kidneys. Um, and that's a wonderful approach and it's helpful clinically. Um, but, but Bernard Lowne points out that, that there's a deep crisis in medicine consisting of the doctor distancing themselves as a patient from the patient as a human, breaking them up into these component organ systems. Um, and that the patient as a whole, who is someone who has hopes and dreams and, and a human narrative, that they're, they're decomposed into these, into these component systems. And that at least Dr. Lown posits that patients feel that loss, but, but doctors don't always. Um, and that for me, when I'm standing at the bedside and I'm examining a patient and I'm, uh, I'm putting my hand uh, to feel the skin temperature and I'm listening with the stethoscope and I'm, I'm appreciating everything in the room and I'm smelling whatever sense are there, um, it takes that patient set of physio physiologic organ systems and it reintegrates them into a, into a patient who could be you know, your parent or your spouse or your son or your daughter or your friend, right? And so for me, this has become instrumental in giving meaning to my work. Being at the bedside gives my work meaning. 
And we know that having meaning in your work is one of the things that really staves off some of these challenges that we all face uh, as intensivists. Um, so I, I'd invite you to consider that as well um, and think about if that may have a role um, in your practice. So we talked about the role of the physical exam in the modern ICU, and I think there's some fascinating discussion around that. Um, should we be examining patients? Uh, what are the test characteristics of the physical exam? Um, are they helpful or not? We shared our approach to how we examine our patients in our practice. And then finally, talked a little bit about point of care. We talked about um, how to train our trainees, and then we focused a little bit on um, this issue of suffusing your work with meaning by being at the bedside and, and integrating the physical exam and using that to, to appreciate the patient as a, as a whole. Okay? Um, and I'll close with final three slides, really aimed at the trainees. I don't know if there are any trainees or if there are trainees listening online. Um, but as I mentioned, I'm in my first staff year. And um, when you come to your first staff year, you find yourself in a very reflective mood, uh, thinking about all the things you learned in fellowship and how they impact uh, what happens to you as an attending. And it turns out that the challenges that you face as an attending are, are more like work and life challenges. They're not challenges of medical knowledge, it turns out. Um, and so the first thing I learned in fellowship that I want to share with you, if you're a trainee, is define what success looks like for you. Um, so we all have wonderful mentors, don't we? And you want to be like your mentors. I want to be like this person or that person. Um, but, I, but think about this. This is the very hungry, this is uh, the mixed up chameleon, um, an Eric Carle book, for those of you who have little kids. And this chameleon kind of wanders through the, the zoo and he looks and says, oh, I wish I were a lion or I wish I were a polar bear or I wish I were a, a, a bird. Um, but at the end, he realizes he's happiest just being a chameleon, right? Um, so think about that for you, that you can have mentors. I want to be this person, this person, this person. But at the end, you have to know yourself and know what makes you happy. And as you transition into your independent practice, um, knowing yourself is actually the biggest thing you can do uh, in pursuing a job that's going to fit you. Um, be 100% where you are. We alluded to the fact we're all pulled in a lot of directions in the ICU, aren't we? Um, but you, know, you can't round and write your paper at the same time and pick up your kid from daycare and go give a lecture to the medical students. So do one thing at a time and enjoy one thing at a time. And your professional satisfaction will be much, much greater. And then finally, appreciate the joy everywhere, right? In the ICU, um, we, we see tragedy every day, don't we? We see critical illness and we see tragedy. Um, but, but don't let the tragedy define you on any given day. Um, find joy where you can. This was a day, it was a fellow, it was five, six in the morning, I was coming into the cath lab, I had uh, a dozen cases lined up, they were already paging me, these four patients need consents, uh, and I was really quite stressed. It was the dead of winter, I think. But you walk outside the parking garage, you know, and this is the view, right? So find that joy everywhere you can, um, and let the joy define you. Don't let the tragedy that we see in the ICU define you. I think that's really, really important. Um, so I'll stop there. I'm happy to take questions either from the audience or from if there's a way to get the people online. But I really appreciate you guys taking the time um, to, to be here. Um, both of us greatly appreciate the invitation. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, as we think, we're, we're neighbors. So we would love, we would welcome collaboration. And really, you could envision that all of us in the Baltimore critical care community should be one community. And we should talk about these issues. We should talk about any issues that, that we um, run into in our day-to-day -day critical care practice. Um, so really sincere thanks again. Uh, we really are grateful to be here. And we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, observations, discussions, anything at all. Yes, sir. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll start. Um, terrific talk. Thank you very much. Uh, I can tell you I'm old enough 
to have rounded with Proctor Harvey when he was visiting Professor once. And even Proctor Harvey admitted that he's right about 70, 75% of the time on his cardiac diagnosis, and he was considered at that time, this was the 70s, the best in the world. That's right. And uh, so it makes you a little nervous about that 25%. Yeah. It also makes you nervous that not everybody's going to be Proctor Harvey. Yeah. And so I would suggest that uh, we start medical school and we get the big speech, the Oslarian speech, or the captain of the ship, and uh, along with everything else, the physical examination is your diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe medicine has advanced dramatically since that time. And as far as I'm concerned, at best, physical examination is a screening mm -hmm. tool. Mm -hmm. uh, so I occasionally make this statement and the trauma surgeons yell at me that I say you never just act on your physical exam, yep. you do a test yeah. as a screening tool. Yep. And they say, nope, we'll take somebody or if the belly is poor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even then, I say, yeah, you always throw an ultrasound on or sure. CAT scan anyhow. Yeah. So I, I think we have to uh, start with our medical education, yep. teaching physical examination in the context of a yep. screening tool. And also, uh, you know, we spend a huge amount of time teaching students how to use the stethoscope. And what is the stethoscope? It's a low end ultrasound mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, every medical student should get an ultrasound machine right. on their first day. Yep. And if they spend as much time with the ultrasound machine, as they did with the stethoscope, we'd be much mm -hmm. further along in this endeavor. Yeah. Um, and so there is a question here is, how do you feel we can um, kind of merge my cynicism with yeah. the humanistic thing? Yeah. The patients do want to be touched. We yes. We feel a connection as a physician. And even if the patient's unresponsive and sedated, the family feels that connection. Yeah. You come in and touch the patient. Yeah. And, uh, and there is a time yeah. too. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so I'll paraphrase for the for the gang online. So, a terrific comment. Really, thank you for that. Um, I think a few points that I'll address. The first, the point that was brought up that the in the best of hands, in the world-renowned Proctor Harvey's hands, that um, you know he got the correct diagnosis based on physical exam, probably in the 60 to 80 percent range is point number one, um, and that you know that's the best case scenario. So there's an there's an accuracy, a diagnostic accuracy that's probably lacking in physical exam alone. Um, and then the second point is that. Um, you know, really getting at the issue of how do we integrate the technology, which, which is sensitive but not always specific, with the physical exam, which is maybe sometimes more specific, at least in advanced disease states, but not as sensitive in picking up early disease states. And I think, um, so to, to respond a little bit, I think the, the, the first point is a terrific one, and that's one that's near and dear to my heart, that, um, you know, your, your ears are good, but, but the echo can show things that your ears can't. Um, and I'd say, though, that it's also vice versa. And for me, it's not a question of physical exam or echo, it's physical exam and echo. It's and 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 um, as, a, as an echocardiographer in my other life. And I'll share with you a scenario. So this is a patient um, who came to us in the ICU uh, with, with shock. Um, and we listened and he had a murmur consistent with VSD. Um, he had the pansystolic murmur, the, the thrill over the chest, uh, you know, post MI, everything. But he had multiple echoes, including a TEE. None of them showed a VSD. Um, yet he was clinically acting like a VSD, and, and he, you heard one on physical exam. And so I think in situations like that, where there's a discrepancy, I'd encourage people to remember two things. So the first is that um, you can be misled by your ears. You can also be misled by the echo. So the echo window that you get is completely dependent uh, on the user and whether they're going to interrogate the entirety of the ventricular septum or just take one or two views. And then not only dependent on the person doing the echo to get the right images, but then dependent on the echocardiologist to actually interpret them correctly. Or of course, if you're a point of care, uh, interpreting, uh, relying on you to interpret them correctly. So for me, um, I love echo, I use echo. 
and I use physical diagnosis because they, they inform each other. So if you put your stethoscope on the chest, you can hear everything that's happening in the chest at once, and it's gonna really give you a pretest probability for what the echo is gonna show. Um, so if you have a high pretest probability, but an echo that's unrevealing, um, now the new valve guidelines have codified this to say it's incumbent on you to do more, to do more imaging, to figure out what that discrepancy is, because everything should match. The, the situation they bring up in the valve guidelines is the aortic stenosis patient who has um, symptoms and signs of severe aortic stenosis. They're breathless, having syncope, having angina. They have a harsh murmur, uh, typical signs of aortic stenosis, but the echo shows a mean gradient that's low, only 20, right? But remember a few things. Remember that in 25% um, of cases, the highest mean gradient will not be in the usual area at the apex. It'll be in the supraclavicular or the suprasternal or the right parasternal, right? So the echo also has caveats. So for me, it's and and and. I agree a thousand percent that, that um, a physical exam alone probably won't get it done for us in the ICU, but, it, but it's and and and, that they complement each other and inform each other very well. Um, and I think your second point is absolutely right, that is to say that um, we have technology and maybe we should use technology, we should emphasize technology, and I agree with all of that. Um, and I would also put another comment on that to say that part of, I think, the value add for us as intensivists is that we do all of those things. We're experts at the technology and we're experts at the bedside assessment. And we're experts at adjudicating uncertainty, which is really what we're asked to do, isn't it? Should this patient go to the OR or not? Should they go on a vasopressor or not, right? So um, I think that I view all of those as tools in our armamentarium. Um, and part of, you alluded to medical training, part of our role as medical educators is to make sure that trainees understand the limits of physical exam as well as the limits of technology. Um, and that they're all arrows in our quiver uh, to do the right thing for our, for our patients. So I, I agree a thousand percent with everything you said, for sure. Other thoughts and comments? Um, you alluded to this during your talk, but I wonder if there are differences between neurosurgery ICUs, surgical ICUs, medical cardiac. I presume there are. Yeah. But the other point is a lot depends on who you train with and where you train. I remember attending in the Weinberg ICU at Hopkins who used to pre-round and examine each and every patient before the team started mm -hmm. rounds, and she still works there. Yep. So it's kind of ingrained into me to examine yep. Yeah, that was me. Me as a as a resident, at the Brigham. I'd round with uh, Dr. Drazen in the medical ICU, the chief, uh, the uh, editor of New England, and he would um, he would do that. He would examine every patient independently, and then bring that to rounds. And really, he would use that as a springboard for his teaching. Apologies, I should I should clarify for the online audience that the comment really addresses um, uh, the timing of bedside rounds. It does the attending round before the team or after, um, and then addresses this issue of heterogeneity of the physical exam in different types of ICUs, neurologic, surgical, medical. So I think, I think that's right. I think that there's a lot of ways one can go about integrating rounds. And at least in my practice, part of it depends on the, the tenor of rounds for that day. Um, if the vibe in the ICU is such that we have a little more leisure, no one's acutely decompensating, um, I think one can, you know, maybe I'll examine the patient ahead of time, get a sense of things, and then use that to really focus on teaching for that patient um, versus if we really have five or six patients who are sick, a lot going to the OR, other things, really the purpose of work is to get the, pur purpose of rounds is to get the clinical care done, um, and maybe it takes a back seat, so I'm more in an expeditious mode for that day. Um, and what I've started to try to do is identify that a priori for me and say, okay, what are my goals for rounds today? How am I gonna get through this and do the things that need to be done across all missions, the educational mission, the clinical mission. Um, and your other point about different specialty ICUs is so important. Um, that's part of why I'm so fond of my training in a multidisciplinary critical care setting, that all those ICUs do it differently because the patients have different needs. 
Um, a neurosurgical ICU is going to have different needs than a medical ICU than a CCU. Um, and so really what that alludes to is how do we grow uh, in our practice? That obviously growth doesn't stop at fellowship, but only, it only starts. And so we're all intensivists. We could ostensibly work in a lot of different ICUs. But if I stopped my surgical ICU practice and then went only to the CCU tomorrow, my physical exam approach should evolve. Likewise, if I went up to, you know, Bo also rounds in the medical ICU, and I'd expect that his physical exam practice looks different in the medical ICU than it does in cardiac surgery. Of course, informed by the same core values, but I think the patient needs change, which is a, a very, very prescient comment. So I think I had a comment up here. Yes, ma'am. I was just wondering if you could speak a, like, briefly on the role of nursing in this. Yeah. Because I know you mentioned when people said, like, one you know, reason why they didn't do a physical exam was I let the nurses do it. And, I mean, they're doing bedside assessment every hour. So yep. they're really our screening tool for an acute right. change yeah. a lot of the time, yeah. especially in a large ICU. Yeah. I think that's true. So the comment is regarding um, uh, the nurse's bedside assessment and the physician's bedside assessment. And really, one could expand that to, to a, a uh, caregiver in the ICU from any background, be it uh, physician's assistant, nursing, uh, uh, physician. And uh, I think that's true. And part of what I find so rich about our practice environment, which involves um, obviously well-trained critical care nurses, but also PAs and NPs and um, medical residents and physicians, obviously, is that um, we all assess the patient and we all assess it through the lens of our training. And so I actually can learn a lot uh, every day from our ICU nurses about how they assess the patient. And they've been very eager on our bedside rounds to learn from me about heart sounds and other things. And so it's been a tremendously fertile cross-collaboration, um, which is why, from my perspective, um, the whole gang at the bedside, nurse, uh, the advanced practice team, the residents, pharmacy, uh, and myself, you know, we all get a vote. Uh, Peter Pronovos talks about the wisdom of crowds, and I think you can very much apply that to the bedside. Well, I think the hour's up, but I thank you again. Um, and please, uh, my email's up here. Uh, the gang knows how to get a hold of me, and I would love to uh, you know, really think of ourselves as a community of intensivists here in Baltimore. So thanks again for having me. Great, great to be here. Yeah.